We come to you as we always do in the name of your Son, that name by which we are called and that name that you have exalted above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask now, Father, that you would hear and answer our petitions this morning according to the righteousness of your Son, who stood in our place at your judgment bar and suffered all that was due to us. We thank you that because you laid your, our iniquities on him, we can come boldly before the throne of grace and seek you as we do this morning. And we ask, Father, that there would not be anything that is on our consciences that would prevent us this morning from receiving what you have for us, from receiving the comfort and the consolation of the scriptures that, that each of us individually need today for the upcoming week and holiday season, the remainder of this year. Thank you for another year in your word, another year in this ministry. We ask that your spirit would work so in our hearts in each of these lessons that we have been looking at on the life and on the death of your son, that we would become a people yielded to you completely in both body and spirit, that we would have absolute surrender. And as we again this morning contemplate the sufferings of your son on our behalf, we ask that you would work these truths so deeply into our our hearts that we would praise you out of the depths of our beings and bring you the glory that you and you alone deserve. May what Christ did on our behalf be counted as precious to us and not something that we would ever take for granted or, God forbid, that we would ever spurn. And if there is one among us this morning, Lord, who has not yet bowed her knee and called upon you to save her, I would ask with all of my heart that today she would go from, be brought from darkness into, into everlasting light, that she would never, ever suffer eternal separation from your presence, that she would understand and realize and surrender to the fact that Jesus Christ died on her behalf. Lord, we love you, and we ask now that you would have your will and your way in every heart here this morning, for we pray in that blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Lesson 180, if you'd open up your Bibles, please, to let, uh, lesson. Matthew, Matthew 27, we're going to be looking at the ninth hour thirst. Last week it was the sixth hour darkness, today the ninth hour thirst. You know, simultaneously with the end of that supernatural three-hour darkness, which I do believe ended just as suddenly as it had begun. I think it began sharply at 12 noon, and it ended sharply at 3 o'clock. Well, at the end of it, the Lord Jesus had cried out, My God, my God, why did you forsake me? And, of course, he did not say that in English, did he? He said it in Aramaic-tinged Hebrew. And now what we want to do is begin this lesson, the ninth hour thirst, by looking at the Calvary crowd's misunderstanding of those words. And what we want to do before we look at his fifth cross saying, which was, I thirst, before we look at that, which we are going to do this morning, What we want to do is analyze the situation 
to consider whether the response of the crowd to Jesus' God-forsakenness cry was uh, a deliberate misunderstanding or was it just an innocent misunderstanding? Because they did indeed misunderstand what he said. When he said, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? They said, oh look, he's calling on Elijah to help him, to get him down from the cross. So was that intentional or was it not? So what we want to do now is read from just one verse, Matthew 27, 47. I am not going to flip you over to Mark because Mark says exactly the same thing. So for time's sake, we're just going to look at Matthew and see what he has to say about this. So Matthew 27, verse 47. It says, some of them that stood there, now that would be people around the cross, when they heard that said, now what was it that they heard? Look at the previous verse. His loud cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. When they heard that, they said, this man calleth for Elias. And you'll notice that the word man is in italics. What does that mean? It's not in the original. So they said, this calleth for Elias. Elias is, of course, the King James for Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Okay, so what we have just learned in that one verse is that when some of the people standing at the crucifixion site heard Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They said, this man's calling for Elias, or this calleth for Elias. Apparently, the unique darkness had constrained the people to remain where they were. There were still bystanders at the cross after those three hours of darkness. What does that tell us? Well, for one thing, it tells us that if that darkness had been the result of a sandstorm or a terrible rainstorm, thunder and lightning, would the people just stand there? No, of course not. They would have sought shelter somewhere. So this, this just helps us to realize that the darkness came upon them suddenly. And it was just dark. There was no rain, there was no sand, nothing blowing at them that they had to try to get away. But if it was utter darkness, they would stay put because how could they move? If they started to try to get away, they could trip on something or bump into each other or hurt themselves. So apparently, during those three hours, the crowds just stayed there. And you know, once the darkness lifted, guess what? The crowds stayed there because now their curiosity was piqued. Nobody would move we got to see what the end of this unusual situation is. So everybody is still there. And then we find, too, that just as there was darkness over the land, there's also darkness over the minds of the people because they did not understand the significance of his cry. And they didn't understand that it was, I'm sure, most of them did not understand. Maybe there was a few scholars there, like the chief priests or scribes, but most of the people did not understand that that cry was of Fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, Psalm 22.1. And they would not have understood that uh, it confirmed for their benefit and for our benefit that Jesus, the Son of God, had just experienced spiritual separation from God the Father in payment for the sins of the world. Now, you can understand why they wouldn't comprehend that. Do you think if we had been there, we would have gotten all that? I doubt Psalm 22.1 would have popped in my mind. 
And if I hadn't been studying, you know, and I, I wouldn't have understood that, oh, that means he was separated from God. You know, he died for, for my spiritual sin, um, you know, spiritual half of the penalty of, of sin on my behalf. We wouldn't have gotten that. You know, he died, I was thinking about this, if Jesus had not been separated from God his Father and had not, you know, experienced spiritual death on our behalf, then how could he be really our high priest who was touched with the feelings of our infirmities? How would he ever understand how we feel, you know, before we were saved and having uh, enmity between us, you know, separation between us and God? He could never have identified with that, could he? And, you know, he died spiritually before he died physically, didn't he? And I thought, well, that's just the reverse because unsaved people die first physically and then they die spiritually and they're separated from God. But then I kept thinking and I thought, well, you know, really the way it first started out, Adam died spiritually first before he then died physically. And Jesus Christ is the second Adam, so he died spiritually first and then physically. And if he had not died spiritually first and given us that cry from the cross, how would you and I know that he ever did die spiritually after he died physically? Are you following me? <laughs> did you do that in the homework? Okay, well, that's good. Then you've already thought this through. But that is all interesting, isn't it? But of course these people around the cross didn't get all that because that's deep theology. We can understand why they didn't get it. <coughs> Um, and, of course, they didn't have their own individual copies of God's word either, like you and I do. They only heard God's word when they went to the temple services or to the synagogue services, and um, that makes things different. So the response that we read, it tells us from some of the people, when they heard his cry, is that he was calling on Elijah for help. Now, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5, prophesied that before the great and terrible day of the Lord... Who would come? Elijah, the prophet Elijah would come. He would be the herald of the Messiah. Okay? Now, because of that prophecy, because of that prophecy that the Jews looked at and understood and knew, they were constantly on the watch for Elijah. Remember, Elijah never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. So they were expecting Elijah to come. And they particularly thought that he would come at the time of the Passover. That is why, remember when we did our Passover study, the Seder? They always set, to this day, when the Jewish people celebrate Passover, they set a place at their Passover table for Elijah. They, you know, have, he has all the, the plate, the food, and everything. And the children, all night long, as they're going through the service, are excited that maybe Elijah will show up. And then remember, at one particular time in the service, they send one of the children to the door, and he opens the door, expecting to see Elijah standing there. And when Elijah isn't there, what does everybody do? They go, oh, well, maybe next year. But they expected, um, they still do, expect that Elijah would come at the time of the Passover. So remember, this is the Passover when he's being crucified. So everybody's got Elijah on their mind. They're going to go through that little service that night. Uh, unfortunately, they missed, the nation missed the first coming herald of the Messiah, who was 
John the Baptist. And we are told by Jesus that he came in the spirit of Elijah, Luke 1.17. And the reason they missed him is because of the religious rulers who rejected the repentance ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist called the shots like they were. He called them a brood of vipers. Religious rulers did not like that, did they? They did not want to repent of their sins because they didn't see that they were sick and sinners. And thus they rejected the one he introduced to the nation as the Messiah. Remember when he pointed his long bony finger at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sin of the world. In fact, those religious rulers were doing just exactly what John had said. They were killing the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. But we can understand, you know, why why some of the people might have misunderstood innocently that Jesus was calling out for Elijah. Um, I didn't know this, but I found out this past week as I was reading one of my uh, new commentaries since I wrote the books. <laughs> but they, the Jews regarded, and I guess they still do, Elijah as their patron saint who would come at the time of their deaths to conduct their souls into paradise. Now that's interesting because if that's what they thought, and maybe that's because of the whirlwind thing and everything, you know, uh, that when they die, Elijah will come and take them to paradise. But what had they just heard Jesus talking about on the cross to the penitent thief? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So they're thinking Elijah because it's Passover. Now they're thinking Elijah because, well, Jesus is going to die. Uh, Let's see if Elijah comes and gets him and takes him. Okay? So we can understand all of this, what their minds are thinking. Also, one more thing. There was a proverb among the Jews, a very common proverb. If somebody was having difficulties, how many of you are going through some difficulties? Okay, here's what we would say to you to give you comfort. Wait until Elijah comes, and everything will be okay. In a sense, I can understand the proverb, because they believe that once Elijah come, came, who was right behind him? <laughs> the Messiah, and everything will be okay. Now, you know, Elijah will come. Malachi 4, 5 will be fulfilled. He will precede the Lord before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that is why many believe that Elijah is one of the two mighty witnesses in Revelation, uh, what is it, chapter 11, I think, or something like that. I can't remember if it's 11 or 7. Somebody can look that up. But that's why they believe Elijah is one of those two mighty witnesses, because he will. The actual Elijah, not John the Baptist, but Elijah, will precede the Lord at the time of his second coming. So one view regarding the response of some of the crowd that this man called for Elias was that it was an innocent misunderstanding of his words. In other words, the people who heard him simply confused his Aramaic cry, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, to be a cry to the prophet Elijah, Elias. And this is called the unintentional confusion view. Now, if some, if, if the ones in the crowd who had this misunderstanding were the Roman soldiers, it's a little easier to understand how they would have misunderstood what the Lord said because they would not have known Aramaic. They probably knew just enough Hebrew to get by, but 
I'm sure they even weren't that great at Hebrew. However, would it not be very, very unusual for the Romans to be the ones to initiate the idea to the crowd that Jesus had just called on the prophet Elijah? I mean, they weren't students of the Old Testament. The Romans hated the Jewish people because of their religion, because it made them so hard to deal with. They didn't go to temple services. They didn't go to synagogue services and hear the Old Testament read. They didn't have their copies of the Old Testament scrolls. How would, they wouldn't have known about Elijah, or if they did know about him, they, you know, they wouldn't be the ones to initiate this kind of an idea. It's far more likely that, that those in the crowd who called out, this man calleth for Elias, were Jewish. That makes better sense. Which brings us to the second view, which is the deliberate misunderstanding view. That view claims that it was an intentional misunderstanding of Jesus' cry, which likely originated with the chief priests or some of the other Jewish religious rulers. Proponents of this view, this second view, say that it was a purposeful deception intended to motivate mockery in Jesus that would turn the common people who were still awed by that darkness from believing in him. And it was also very typical of the Jews, if you remember in our previous studies, for them to derogatorily refer to Jesus as this, not even giving him the dignity of saying this man. And you know how they would stick out their lips? Remember we read that earlier when they were um, mocking him? Mm -hmm. They would go like this, this. In other words, the inference is this lowlife, this deceiver. That would be very typical for them to say. As we can imagine, there must have been total panic in the Sanhedrin members when that eerie noonday darkness just suddenly came upon the land. And by the way, um, I did look up the word for land in Luke's gospel, and it doesn't help us out. It is not the word cosmos. It's the same word, yin, which is used in Matthew and Mark. So whether it's land or the globe, Luke doesn't help us any more than, than they do. But... Um, I don't know what you ever decided in your groups, but you probably had fun doing that. But when that darkness came at least upon the land of Israel, they, these religious guys who knew their Old Testaments, they knew that the scriptures uh, always portrayed darkness as a sign of God's divine displeasure and judgment. Many verses in the Old Testament speak of um, darkness when God is not happy. Listen, for example, to Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 11. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, and he, God, shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. When is that going to happen? During the time of the great tribulation. And then Amos 5.20, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it? 
That makes me think that the darkness at the time of God's displeasure when they were killing his son, that the darkness was very dark and there was no brightness in it. I wonder if during the darkness at Calvary, these Jews weren't panicking. And I I wonder if they were remembering the time when a group of them that consisted of Pharisees and Sadducees went to Jesus to tempt him, we were told, Matthew 16, 1, and requested of him a sign in the sky, a sign in the heavens. Like, you know, write your name, Jesus, with your finger in the heaven, with the clouds, or have angels suddenly fill the whole sky, I don't know, whatever, Give us seven rainbows, and then we'll believe on you. Give us a sign from heaven. And he was upset, and he called them a bunch of hypocrites. And he said, you guys can read the sign of the sky. You know, if it's a red night, you know what's going to happen the next day. Weather-wise, you can read that. But what you can't read is the sign, uh, signs of the times. And I thought about how that's so true today, isn't it? We have wonderful weathermen that tell us when hurricanes are coming. And we can all know in advance. And I don't know why people stick around, do you? Uh-uh. I'm going to get out of there if I know a hurricane's coming my way. But, but they can't read. So many of them can't read the signs of the times. Let's not be like that. Let's be able to read the signs of the times. Are you reading the signs of the times? What are they telling you? It's getting very close. Israel is ready to do something. I mean, signs of the times. He's, he's, it's evident. It's all around us. And then he went on to say he would give them no sign in the sky, but what would he give them? The sign of Jonah, the prophet, which was, on the third day, I'll come out of the belly of the earth. But God in heaven did give them a sign in the the heavens. And when did he give it to them? Right there on Calvary as they're killing his son. And you just know that it had to be very, very frightening for those religious rulers during those three hours of darkness, those hypocritical religious leaders, because they knew that they had falsely arrested Jesus. They had bribed a man to to betray him. They knew that they had falsely convicted him of everything except his claim to be the Son of God. They knew they had even bribed false witnesses. They also knew very well that he was able to perform all kinds of supernatural powers, even raise people from the dead. There was never any doubt about that. They knew it. They knew he was no ordinary man. And I wonder how many of them felt really scared and guilty during those three scary hours of pitch-dark blackness. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes during that time. But if they had felt guilty and scared, unfortunately, they became just like Pharaoh, who also had become frightened during the three days of the darkness that was caused by the the ninth plague on Egypt. But what happened? As soon as the darkness fled away, Pharaoh turned in willful disbelief and anger against Moses, didn't he? What do these religious rulers do? Same exact thing. They willfully turn in disbelief against Jesus, who was their deliverer, even more than Moses had been their forefather's deliverer. They realized suddenly, I mean, these guys were slick. 
They're fast. They are crafty politicians, more than they were religious leaders. And all of a sudden, they realized they had to distract the people, the common people, from thinking too seriously about Jesus. You know, his unusual behavior while he was being crucified? Had they ever seen a man offer no resistance at all to those big nails going into his wrists and his feet? Not screaming, not fighting, not trying to get away, not taking the drug potion, and all the while doing what? Praying for his very enemies, praying for those who were doing that to him. That's unusual, unique behavior. What else had the crowd witnessed? Well, they had seen his unusual behavior on the cross. Instead of being self-focused, he's concerned for those around him, for the thief next to him. For his mother down below, they notice his majestic calm. He's being reviled. He never reviles back, even amidst all the mockery that was going on. Well, you couple those things with the sudden noonday, three-hour eerie darkness, and then coming out of that darkness, his direct loud quote from a Davidic psalm, put all that together, and it just might gain the attention of some of those people. And they might conclude that he is, after all, who he claimed to be. Like that centurion. Truly, this is the Son of God. And then, who would be in really deep waters if that happened? Those religious rulers. Because they're the reason he's hanging up there on that cross. And along with everyone else, they very, very clearly heard Jesus' cry, Eloi, Eloi. Nobody could not hear him. Because it had been absolutely dead silent when he cried out. And how did he cry out? In a whisper or a mutter? That you might have to, you know, eh, what did you say? No, in a loud voice he shouted out. And guess what? He didn't just say Eloi once. He said it twice. The Jews knew and could speak both Aramaic and Hebrew. They knew he was crying out, My God, my God, and not my Elijah, my Elijah. Furthermore, what else did these chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees know? They knew the Davidic psalm from which he quoted. What does it say in Psalm 22.1? My Elijah, my Elijah, why did you forsake me? No, they knew it said, my God, my God. Proponents of the second view, the deliberately deceitful view, believe that the Jews purposely mocked the Lord and intentionally twisted his words so that he would appear to be so weak that he had to call on a mere creature, Elijah, instead of on God, because God had already failed to deliver him. Maybe they were even mocking the fact that this one who had claimed to be the Messiah was so na now so low and desperate that he was actually calling on the one who was supposed to have been his forerunner. He's calling on him for help. That's how low he had gotten. Something else to consider when they said, this man or this calleth for Elijah, is, and this makes it really look like it was a deliberate misinterpretation of his loud cry, 
is the fact that he had not cried out for help at all. They go on and say, if you look down, and if also if you looked over at Mark, that he was calling on Elijah for help to get him down from the cross. That's what it says over in Mark. Now, think about it. His cry was not a cry for help at all from either God or Elijah. It wasn't. Look at it. What was it? <laughs> it, it was... It was a question. His cry had been in the form of a question. Not a call for help. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's a question. And it's a question not for help. It's a question about forsakenness. Now, would it make any sense at all for him to be saying, My Elijah, my Elijah, why did you forsake me? Does anybody call on, do any of you call on Elijah when you're feeling forsaken? (laughs) If, if you do, let me know, because that's a little bit unusual. You might have some troubles going on. <laughs> so that just wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to be calling, uh, for them to say he was calling for help when he was asking a question, and he wouldn't be asking it of Elijah. It's just crazy. I am more inclined to agree with those who, um, who say that it was an intentional misinterpretation of his words and that it was sparked by the religious rulers. The common people might have at first misunderstood Jesus. But when their religious rulers said, oh, he's calling for Elijah, you know what they were? A bunch of dumb sheep always following their leaders without thinking for themselves. And I think they probably just went along with their rulers. And, of course, they would want to deliberately misrepresent him so that the people would, you know, turn from Jesus after all, especially after that strange darkness and not conclude that he was God's son. Well, what we have to do now, and uh, we have to do this so that we get the right chronological flow of the events, is we're going to have to jump over to John 19. But before you do that, let me show you why. Because if we stayed in either Matthew or Mark, we wouldn't get we wouldn't get the connection here. Look, we just read verse 47 where it says, Some of them stood there, and when they heard him, his cry, they said, This calleth for Elias. And then look at what verse 48 says. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Well, we would say, hmm, one of them must have been one of the crowd there, randomly just decided to give Jesus a drink. Isn't that how it sounds? And it sounds the same way in Mark. So what you need to do is put a little bracket there between verses 47 and 48. Maybe your Bible already tells you this, but you need to put between those two verses John 19:28. Because that's why the why one of the men actually ran and got Jesus something to drink because of what happened in John 19:28. Okay? And that is of course the Lord's fifth crossing. When he said, I thirst. So once you've done that, would you move over to John 19? John 19, and let's look together at verse uh, 28. Well, we'll look at it in a minute. Now, only, only John tells us, he's the only one who tells us why Jesus was offered a drink at this time. And from the under, uh, the, from his account, we can understand better that it was probably offered by one of the Roman soldiers. Okay? Now remember how a couple weeks ago we said that every one of the Lord's seven cross sayings serves as a window 
a, a peek into his mind and his heart and his thoughts. It's a revelation to us of what he was thinking during his suffering on the cross at Calvary. So with this next saying, I thirst, we should ask the question, what was the Lord revealing to us in this fifth saying regarding his thirst? He mentions his thirst purposely because in doing so, something is completed. All right, let's look very carefully at the verse, very carefully at verse 1928. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now, what's the next word? Accomplished. That is from the same Greek word as when Jesus at the end says, it is finished. Tetelestai, accomplished. It's a little bit different form, but I'll just for your sake say tetelestai. So after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now finished, you could say the same word. You could say accomplished or completed, or you can say fulfilled. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, completed, fulfilled, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Oh, guess what? That's the same word again. Tetelestai. So you could read it like this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be accomplished, saith saith I thirst, or you could read it like this, Jesus knowing that all things were now fulfilled, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith I thirst, or you could say it like this, Jesus knowing that all things were now completed, that the scripture might be completed, saith I thirst. So he purposely said, I thirst, so that something would be completed. This is the only time during the Lord's whole passion on the cross that he mentioned anything about his physical suffering. Do you know that? The only time. And there are revelations, there are windows for us behind this declaration of his thirst. You can be sure of that. And one of them is that it tells us that his sufferings were real. His physical sufferings were genuine. Do you know what? We might not have known that otherwise. We might not have. You know, we, his composure was so absolute. His composure was so majestic. His control was just so divine. He was always in utter control. Even during those six hours on the cross, he prayed so selflessly. His mind was so alert. He was able to expel enough breath to actually shout out loud, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And again, he will do it when he says, it is finished. You know, they say, the Greek word, when he shouts out loud, te telesai, was like a lion roaring. Have you seen the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the first one? And the lion, I saw it with my little grandson the other night. I was weeping and weeping because it's such a beautiful picture of our Lord. And that lion roars. That's what he did when he said, it is finished. Even after six hours of terrible, terrific, horrendous, excruciating agony, he had that kind of power and breath. We might never have known that his pain was genuine. We might have wondered if God the Father had not somehow minimized his son's pain. After all, that was his son. 
If you were the father, wouldn't you minimize your son's pain? You know, uh, maybe softened his suffering in some miraculous way, perhaps by some divine insulation, so that even though he was bruised, and even though he did bleed, yet he was immune from feeling the actual physical pain of it all? We might have thought that. People might have thought that. So his statement, I thirst, is a testimony to the world of the reality of his physical suffering. That's one window. That's one revelation. (laughs) You know, (laughs) another thing to note with regard to this matter of his thirst is that it was an aspect of his suffering that had been foretold scripturally foretold and this is something that's easy for people to overlook you know when we think of everything that jesus endured on the cross naturally we think of the well before the cross the horrific scourging that he went through (coughs) we think of the uh the crown of thorns and the long long iron nails that went through his wrists and his feet and we think about um all the other pain, you know, of just trying to breathe and pushing up and down. We think of those things, but how often do we think about the raging thirst of crucifixion victims? They say that for wounded soldiers out on the battlefield, that the thirst, their thirst, is one of the most excruciating pains that they have in in their suffering. And we know, we went over crucifixion, we talked about all the things that go on, but, you know, with the loss of blood and with the fever and in the hot sun and the wounds to the wrists and to the feet and the elevated heartbeat and the great exertion of the body just to breathe, all of that combined brings on a raging, flaming thirst. Now, we talked about Psalm 22 already, but, you know, in verse 15 of that same psalm, The Lord Jesus, speaking through his servant David, had revealed his thoughts at this time. He told us something about what he was going through, and he said these words. My strength, you might want to turn there and look at it for yourself, or maybe you're in your books, I don't know, but Psalm 22, 15, I think I'm going to be there several times. Uh, He says, my strength is dried up like a pot shard. You know, he's saying that he feels like a clay pot that at one time was full of moisture, but now it's old or, you know, it's broken into pieces and it's just laying out in the hot sun and it is thoroughly dry. He feels like a dried clay, a piece of clay pottery. You've all seen that, right? Dried up piece of clay. And he went on to say, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. That's thirst. And thou, he's talking to his father, thou hast brought me into the dust of death. How's that for a description of thirst? The dust of death. His thirst, you see, was foretold 1,000 years earlier. And it was also in our place. He suffered his thirst so that we wouldn't have to. And if Jesus had not said, I thirst, not only would we not know that his physical pains were genuine and real, but we would not know that Psalm 22:15 had been fulfilled, that the Messiah's tongue did indeed cleave to his jaw, and he was dried up like a piece of clay pottery. 
Again, how often do we think of this? You know, we, 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 we talk about the fact that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It's by his stripes that we are healed. We know all those things. We talk about those things. But the thirst he suffered was also in our place. His words, I thirst, you see, give us evidence of his humanity. As it says in 1 Peter 4.1, he did suffer for us in the flesh. He did feel physical pain. He was given a body like unto ours, a real flesh and blood body. So his words reveal his humanity, but the reason he spoke them gives evidence of his deity. Let's ask ourselves the question, why does the Lord speak of this one aspect alone of all of his physical sufferings? Why does he only mention his thirst? Why didn't he say, I'm hot? Why didn't he say, I'm really in pain? Why didn't he say, my wrists hurt, my feet hurt, I can't breathe? Why alone does does he speak of thirst? We need to know this because this is what the passage in John is occupied with explaining. What, again, are the precise words? Well, let's look back. Well, you got to just keep moving with me, all right? <laughs> back at John 19, 28, or you can just listen. It says, after this, Jesus knowing. After this, Jesus knowing. Why did he say what he did and call attention to his thirst aspect of his suffering, the reason that is given to us is because of his knowledge. After this, Jesus knowing, now we ask the question, what did he know? Knowing that all things were now accomplished, completed, fulfilled. The Lord Jesus, with a crystal clear mind, knew full well that at the conclusion of those six hours on the cross at 3 p.m. on Passover day, the 14th of Nisan, after suffering an eternity of spiritual separation from God his Father, out of which he had just come, his return from hell, we could say, that everything he knew full well that everything to that point that must be accomplished had now been accomplished. And it brought him to the point where he could now say, I thirst and set in motion that which followed. You see, he was not only a 100% man and therefore suffered true flesh and blood pain and thirst on our behalf, but he was also a 100% deity. He knew that all things had now been finished. And so that the scripture might be fulfilled, he spoke his fifth cross saying, I thirst. And I want you to get this. Get this next statement. Our Savior did not say, I thirst, for the purpose of relieving his suffering. He said it so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Wow. You see, he really did, you know, believe that it was by every word. He lived and died by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. 
Yes, the excruciating thirst was real. And can you imagine going through hell and coming out the other end? Would you be thirsty? Oh, yeah. You better believe it. The thirst was real. And big, buff, burly men will cry out like babies for water when they're thirsty. But that thirst, physical thirst, was not why Jesus spoke. He spoke because of his knowledge of where he stood in the redemptive plan. There was yet one more messianic prophecy to be fulfilled before he could then say once and for all, te telestai, and die, give up his ghost. In Psalm 69, 21, this is again David writing, David was divinely moved by the spirit of the living God to record the words of the coming Messiah. And here is what David said, Psalm 69, 21. We've talked about this before. They gave me also gall for my meat. Of course, we know he had refused it. What was the gall? It was the bitter herb, myrrh, that was mixed in that cheap uh, vinegar wine. And they had offered him that when? When they were actually crucifying him, but he refused it. What's the second half of Psalm 69:21? And in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That first drink that was offered to him with the gall, with the myrrh that he refused, it was not given to him because of his thirst. It was given to him to help numb his mind and thus some of his physical suffering. Even if he had drunk it, which he did not, but even if he had, that action would not have fulfilled the second half of Psalm 69:21, which says, In my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. You know, there were some prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, by his own participation in them, such as him remaining silent as a lamb led to the slaughter. When they, you know, took him, arrested him from the garden and they took him from one trial to the other, he remained silent. He let, let them lead him. He was participating in the fulfillment of the prophecy, wasn't he? He made intercession for the transgressors when he was on the cross. That was fulfillment of Isaiah 53:12. He fulfilled prophecy by his own participation in that prophecy. Other prophecies were fulfilled without his participation, such as when they gambled for his clothing, or after he dies, when they bury him in a rich man's tomb, or when they don't break his bones, Right? Didn't, you know, he didn't have any participation in those kind of prophecies being fulfilled. However, this final pre-death prophetic fulfillment, where he, when he says, I thirst, and it fulfills Psalm 69:21, this is unique. This is unique in that he specifically set it in motion with his words, I thirst. Because when he said, then what happened? They offered him vinegar to drink. So this is unique. 
This is the only one he purposely set in motion. However, before we move on to look at the actual offering of that drink, something else we need to consider for a window of insight into the Lord's mind is the context of his statement, I thirst. What's the context? Well, obviously we know it's right at the end of his uh, crucifixion. He's about to die. It's just a matter of a minute or so before he does give up the ghost. Um, we also know that he had just broken three hours of darkness and silence with his cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as we discussed last week, that cry verified for our benefit that during those three eerie hours of darkness, he suffered spiritual separation from God. God forsakenness. So now, in his very next statement, which was right on the heels of it, you know, he says these last ones right in a row, boom, 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 boom. Right away, he says, I thirst. That statement reveals to us the severity of the spiritual conflict through which he had just passed. His thirst, you see, more importantly than the fact that it was physical and it was real, more importantly, it was a spiritual thirst. It was spiritual in nature. It was the after effect of the agony of his soul as he had just experienced an eternity of separation from his father and an eternity of God's wrath and God's judgment for the sins of the world. He had just suffered a compacted eternity of the separation and the darkness and the thirst that is hell. What is hell? When we think of hell, what is hell? It's separation from God. That right there makes it hell. It's utter darkness because God's not there and God is light. And what else is it? Utter thirst. Total thirst. That's hell. Remember the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16? That is not a parable. It is not a parable. The Lord never gave a parable and used a real person's and used a name. This, that was a real non-fictional description of people who depart from this life without the salvation God provides through his son. And one aspect of that eternal separation is unquenchable thirst. A longing for just a quick cooling of the tongue as the rich man begged that Abraham would let Lazarus, the once poor beggar, do. You know, just dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue just for a second of relief. We talked last week about how Jesus is the source of light. I am the light of the world, he said, and apart from him is utter darkness. Now, we talk about the fact that he's also the source of living water. And without him, there is utter dryness. Darkness and dryness. He suffered hell's thirst so that you and I will never have to. Isn't that wonderful to know? As a matter of fact, if you know him and you have been born again, we will be blessed to drink of the water of life freely and eternally and thirst 
no more spiritually or physically. That's one of the promises given in Revelation 7.16. Now, of course, just as the Lord's previous cross saying was taken as a cry for, you know, some kind of physical help from Elijah, so also his words, I thirst, were understood only from the physical realm, weren't they? Because we find that one man, probably one of the four Roman soldiers assigned to see through with the Lord's crucifixion, got him some cheap wine vinegar to drink. Now, uh, let's look at verse 29. Did I read that already? John 19, 29. No, I didn't. Okay, let's look at verse 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Hmm, isn't it interesting it mentions hyssop? Where does that take our minds back to on this Passover day? Back to the original Passover in Egypt when they were to take the blood of the Passover lamb and apply it to the doorposts of their homes with hyssop. Hyssop only grew to be about 18 inches long. This is 18 inches from here to here. So when the soldier lifted it up, that tells us that Jesus was only about two feet off the ground. He would have had to get a ladder if he was like some of the pictures where he was way up there. All right. So that's another indication that he was not very far off the ground. All right, so a soldier um, gets a drink. We're moving on to the third part of our outline. And it's commonly believed that it was a Roman soldier and not some Jewish person in the crowd. And that's the reason for this is I don't think if a Jewish person ran over to the vessel that was right there by the Roman soldiers and they took it and they got their reed and the sponge and everything that the Roman soldiers would just let them do that. They'd say, what are you doing? Because that was their cheap vinegar wine that they would drink while they're waiting for their victim to die. And they would have the hyssop reed and they would have the sponge, the soldiers would, because that was part of their task, was to periodically give their victim something to drink. Um, now this man, whoever he was, a Roman, a soldier, he did not have to answer Jesus' cry for that he was thirsty, but he did. He did do it. He did give him something to drink. You know, they were all, all of the Romans that were there. Remember, there were three victims, so there was at least uh, 12 Roman soldiers there this day. They were all probably very shocked when Jesus had first refused that vinegar wine mixed with the myrrh. I'm sure they never saw anybody deny taking that. So, And then he had also probably not drunk the vinegar wine that he was offered earlier during the first three hours on the cross, when everybody was mocking him, it says that the soldiers even mocked him as king and they held up vinegar for him to drink. I don't think he probably even drank that. So they're probably shocked, you know, that now he's ready to drink something after six hours. But the reason he's ready is because he is going to fulfill scripture, the prophetic word of God. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, this particular soldier, we can be absolutely sure, had no idea whatsoever that he was directly used to fulfill messianic prophecy. You think he thought of that? Think he knew that? No, but he was. He was used to fulfill prophecy. He would have no idea about the contents of Psalm 69 and that what he did 
was one last piece of pre-death proof that the man on the center cross was the savior of the world. You know, he was whoever he was, he was really given a great privilege and a great honor because he was the last person. Think of this. The very last person to show any degree of kindness to the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. I think that he was personally moved by all he had observed during the past six hours. And he wanted to do something helpful, not something harmful. And why do I say that? Because of one word that is given to us by both Matthew and Mark. And that little word is ran. He ran to do the Lord's bidding. When the Lord said, I thirst, he didn't have to run. If that was just part of his drudgery task, he could have just stood up, gone over, gotten the reed, stuck a sponge on it, put it to the Lord's lips. But he ran. Perhaps his spirit was so deeply drawn to Jesus that when he heard him mention his thirst, he truly wanted to be the one to help him. So he jumped up before anybody else and he ran to do it. He makes me think about the the Lord's words at the, the end time judgment of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man will say to those sheep on his right hand, For I was in hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was, what's the next word? Thirsty, and ye gave me drink. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you, from the foundations of the world. Jesus there was not saying, that the sheep enter the kingdom because of a good work. That is given. That will be after the tribulation. When the Jews, Jesus' brethren, are persecuted by the Antichrist like unbelievable. Worse than Hitler. And anyone who would reach out to the least of one of these, my brethren, the Jews, and help them, like some people did in World War II, like Corey Ten Boom, and reach out and help the Jewish people, that person will give evidence that they truly are born again, one of the Lord's own, because nobody else would dare risk that because your life would then be, you know, at, at risk. So that's what he's saying there. But we don't know the identity of this man who offered Jesus his final earthly drink, but perhaps that very day, or perhaps on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, or perhaps the next week, or sometime in the future, that man gave his heart to Christ. That's always what I like to think. And that he truly did receive an exceedingly abundant reward for his act of kindness here. Now, I'm, how am I doing? I'm out of time, so let me just end. I didn't get to the whole lesson, but you've got two months to read the rest of it. You do know we don't come back till January 8th, which is my son's birthday. Okay, January 8th, um, come back. We could actually almost say, Tate, tell us, die. This is the end of 2012. Can you believe it? I wish we could have said, you know, at the end of the year, but it didn't work out like that. We're going to have to wait when we come back 
to finish up with when he says it is finished. Oh, that's going to be such a dynamic lesson. Probably take us at least two lessons to get through it. But I do want to end with this while you're putting your Bibles away and everything. Charles Spurgeon, I think this is in your books, but this is just so... I love a man who thinks like this. Charles Spurgeon thought of something very interesting. He said, you know, think of this, the very last thing to be brought into contact with the creator of the universe before his death. Now, you know Jesus Christ was the creator. He was. He was the word that spoke all things into existence with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It says in Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created. The final thing to come into contact with the creator was a sponge. <laughs> a sponge, the lowest form of animal life, which touched the lips of the one who spoke all things into existence. The lowest form of life came into contact with the highest form of life. Actually, the creator, the source of all life. When the Lord originally created the sponge, he quenched its thirst by placing it in the waters of the ocean. And now the lowly sponge sponge served its creator by quenching his thirst in the dying moments of his life. Only a Charles Spurgeon would think of something like that. But isn't it beautiful? It is so beautiful. All right, I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Let's ask the Lord's final blessing, and uh, we'll see you in 2013, Lord willing. Father, we ask that you would accept our humble, deep thanksgiving for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die in our place and to die in such a way to save sinners like ourselves from an eternity in torment, suffering, separation from you, and utter darkness and utter dryness. We thank you, Father, that now whatever we suffer is not penalty, but it's all about testing. And it's about refining us so that we might truly be transformed into the image of your blessed Son. I can't imagine being like him one day. But that is what your word says. Your word is not about explanations. It's about promises. And we cling to those promises. And Lord, we thank you that you did indeed live and die by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. And may we do so likewise. We thank you for loving us so much. And we pray in your name. Amen.